Hey guys, this is Heidi Moore. Can you believe it's been over a whole year since we began Wine Crush Oregon? If you've enjoyed the stories and the winemakers, would you please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes so others may discover us? And while you're at it, don't forget to tell your wine-loving friends about this podcast. Stay tuned for Wine Crush, Northwest Wine Stories, Uncorked. Welcome to Wine Crush, where winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. Thanks for joining us here on Portland Radio Project. Today, host Heidi Moore will guide us through two stories of local winemakers. The first draws inspiration from the camaraderie of the process. The second showcases how the study of engineering can lead to winemaking. So we are talking with Ian Burroughs from Ari Wine. Welcome to the show and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Heidi. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have mispronounced the name of the winery about seven times today. And so I'm going to have you tell us exactly how to pronounce it and where the origin of it came from, then go into your story for us. Okay, certainly. Um, You don't need to apologize for mispronouncing Ari because it happens all the time. It's a really cool palindrome, um, A-E-R-E-A. I pronounce it Ari. You can pronounce it however you would like. Aria is what I keep going with. And Aria is fine. Okay. okay, good to know. <laughs> like that famous restaurant in Las Vegas. Ari is uh, essentially a Latin word that means ethereal or aerial. And that's always been um, the driving sort of style behind the wines that I make, which are all based on Gamay Noir grape. Um, so very, very light, very ethereal, um, perfumed, um, low-ish alcohol, refreshing, delicious. Which okay, are two and we things. have been, yeah, we've been trying your wine mm. um, for actually a while now. We've been here for a while <laughs> getting ready and they've been fantastic. Yeah, I, I feel like we've been here forever. I'm slightly buzzed. Yes, the, which is the best way the, to do a podcast. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So... <laughs> Your story is kind of global. So let's um, start start from where you started. And you have a lot of nuances with food and wine mm. and traveling and things that I really think have lent to your your style. Yeah. So so friends of mine say that the police haven't quite caught up to me yet. I've been <laughs> I've been traveling the world for uh, the best part of twenty five years now. I started, well, my story begins in Southeast London. I was born and raised there. Um, came from a family of people that thought hospitality was very important. So my grandfather had a pub in Southeast London in a, a little area called Peckham and uh, it was a very successful business. So I had this kind of um, upbringing that was surrounded by cheerful people enjoying alcohol. Um, I learned to appreciate alcohol and respect its effects at a pretty early age. Um, and my father and my mother both um, had businesses. They were greengrocers. They bought and sold wholesale fruit and vegetables. They had retail outlets and they also um, served restaurateurs, restaurants and hoteliers with with fruit and vegetables. And so I was surrounded by chefs at an early age and uh, I was I gravitated towards that. I so became great food, great wine. Good food, great good wine. Everything. Yep. Yes. All together. Yep. So from London, where did that take you? Because I know you didn't stay in England. Uh, okay. Let's do the short version. I've worked as a chef, as a cook in, in London, in Paris, in Octorada in Scotland, um, in Adelaide, South Australia. And then fast forward 
uh, to 2005, 2006, I started in the wine industry and, and worked back in Paris uh, and now obviously in America, um, both in San Francisco, in the Bay Area and now in Oregon. So how did you technically or why did you move from Paris to <laughs> Oregon? There's um, a large differentiation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to pursue the quartermaster sommelier examinations, and uh, the best place to do that for me at that point was in United States. Um, I had a couple of really terrific mentors that were based here in the states, so that's what made me drew me um, to the U.S. It makes sense, and I've heard that quite a bit. It seems like uh, there's something about California that leads into Oregon uh, for winemakers that have have come from Europe. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm not really a winemaker, but I'll, I'll forgive you for thinking I am. I happen to make wine, but I'm not trained. It's very instinctual for me. Sure. Well, which is great because, I mean, that's a totally different take on what we've heard, you know, from others as well. Uh-huh. So we are going to talk about your wine in just a second. Okay. So let's dive back into that here shortly. Okay. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. Ian, you've already told us so much about your traveling, your background, the connection with food and wine and kind of your upbringing. So now that you're in Oregon, how does that background, that experience translate into what you're doing today? Yeah, it's a great Question, Heidi. Um, I think um, after so many different experiences in the hospitality wine industries, I've always appreciated how wine is really meant to be served alongside food at the table. And I really prefer smaller production wines. And so anything that I decide to do in the wine industry is always going to be on a smaller scale, I think. Um, I'm less driven by, um, (laughs) let's say, less driven by money and more driven by the experience of wine. Um, so I like working with smaller growers. I enjoy working in a smaller environment where I can be more independent. Um, and so, you know, my affiliation, you know, setting up Ari and then its affiliation to Proteus, which is where I make the wine, just fits fits perfectly for me. I get complete control. I'm a little bit of a control freak. Um and I get to work independently. I obviously have uh, some friends, um, professional and personal, that that will help out during vintage when things get stressful and uh, a little more difficult for for somebody, for one person to manage. But essentially, um, I'm kind of my own boss, and I like it that way. Um, so, if it's answering your question, which I hope it is, um, I like smaller environments, more independence. Sure. And it sounds like you are really looking for something that is is going to pair well with food and it's mm. friendly and you can drink it. And I know with the Ari wine, you are doing mostly Gamay, mm, if yeah. not all Gamay. So why Gamay? And mm. what is it with what you're doing that really makes you stand apart and makes you different? Yeah. There was a time that I worked in Paris for a gentleman by the name of Tim Johnston and at a, at a wine bar called Juvenile's. And I was very lucky to be able to spend some time with him blending with uh, some pretty incredible producers in the Beaujolais district. And Beaujolais in France, just kind of around the, the region where Lyon is centered in France, those wines are really juicy, um, fresh. They can be drunk um, on the youngish side. Um, and they're really made to accompany richer food. I came very quickly to uh, 
appreciate those styles of wines. And so when I decided to set up RE and try to think about the styles of wine I wanted to make, it was there. Um, it was that style of wine, I should say. It took me back to to that time at Juveniles and um, really appreciating affordable, delicious, refreshing, thirst-quenching wines. That's kind of our mantra. Um, I don't really want to produce wines. Um, and my business partner at Proteus do not want to produce wines that are inaccessible um, in any way. Um, we want people to be able to pull a cork um, any night of the week. So that's why we, we have a pretty strict sort of cap on the value of our bottles that we produce. Which is really nice for someone who is really um, trying to understand and learn and appreciate the wine business is I don't have a sophisticated palate necessarily to where I can pull every nuance out of the wine that is there. So having a refreshing, drinkable, friendly wine is really important for somebody like me and I'm sure a lot of other people because then I don't feel so bad about my ignorance, I guess, with when it comes to the palate. Yeah. Yeah. We want we, we want to have wines that are, like I said, approachable and friendly for everybody. Um, you know, we eschew the use of new oak, uh, not because we don't like new oak, but we just don't feel that that really is needed in the style of wine that we're producing at the price point that we're producing it at. And and the same thing for chemical ads. You know, the more work we do to the wine, the more effort we put into the wine. Effort's probably a bad word because we put a lot of effort into it, but um, it's kind of uh, hands off. Um, we think the more we put in, the more we're going to have to charge for the bottle. So it's very much an economics uh, thing for us as well. Yeah, I, I just want to do as little as possible and make delicious wines that people feel comfortable about drinking. And it is delicious. Um, we've tasted it a couple times already today. And so um, I want to talk about Proteus because you've mentioned it, but we'll talk about that here in just a second. You're listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 in the heart of Portland and streaming worldwide at prp.fm. So coming back, talking about both Ari and Proteus, you had mentioned Proteus, and I want you to kind of circle back around, and, and you didn't really tell us what that was, but I know it is a project involved in everything else that you're doing. Mm, yeah, it's a really important part. Um, without Proteus, Ari wouldn't exist. Um, essentially, I have three um, affiliations. I have two companies and then a strong affiliation with a third, and the third being Proteus. Uh, Proteus is owned and run by a gentleman by the name of Peter Jacoby, who I um, need to give immense thanks, gratitude towards. Um, Peter was my first client in another one of my businesses. It was a brokerage business called Consolon. I started in 2000 and late 2014, early 2015. Um, and it's basically, um, well, what is a brokerage? It is um, essentially a, a sales representation business. So I try to help um, producers much like myself um, to get their names out in the marketplace in Oregon. So I essentially sell their wines on their behalf. Uh, Peter Jacoby, the owner of Proteus, came to me in 2014, 2015, and uh, floated the idea of commercializing his very small um, estate, um, which is now now Proteus. Two and a half acres, Chahila Mountains. Um, at that time, it was making uh, four to 500 cases of wine a year. It's still right around three to 400 cases of wine. And it's essentially Pinot Noir, both white and red, and then a skin contact Pinot Gris. Let's reverse back to the white Pinot because I love things that are different. Yeah. And you don't hear white Pinot very often. I know it's, it's a skin contact thing it is where the mm, some of it, yes. anyhow, is where some of the color comes from. Oh. So mm -hmm. so why 
why white Pinot? Why not do the full-blown other other than it's different? Yeah. Um, so I think it's really nice to see, you know, for me, it was really important to express at that particular place, that estate. Um, and so to have the opportunity to basically commercial, commercialize the wine um, in a way that whatever you liked as a guest, as a consumer, you could be fulfilled. If you like white wine, red wine, or if you like something on the weirder side, like skin contact Pinot Gris, your needs are fulfilled. I basically cut the Pinot Noir vineyard in half. I do a slightly earlier pick for zero skin contact or as little as possible dry white wine. So it's Pinot Noir. There's a little bit of Pinot Blanc, a little bit of Chardonnay that goes into that. Um, it's all neutral barrel fermented. There's no additions to the wine. Um, tastes more like Chenin Blanc than it does Pinot Noir, white Pinot Noir, I should say. Um, so it has kind of a this really kind of salty tang to it. Lots of kind of stone fruit character, but it's not rich. It has a depth of flavor, but it's not a heavy wine, full-bodied. Um, and, it's uh, yeah. really lovely. Thank you. It's nice. <laughs> it's different. It's lovely. It's easy to drink. It's very enjoyable. Mm. So thank and you. a great accompaniment <laughs> to yes. the table, I hope. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So I know you are out and about. You have different tasting room kind of set up. Mm. So let's touch base on that before I let yeah. you get out of here because I know you're on the run. I am. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of people to thank. I think the best way to taste the Proteus and Ari wines um, is to come and see us, but it's only by appointment. So look up on the Ari website. It's uh, it's basically Ari, A-E-R-E-A dot -E -E com or ProteusWines.com, P-R-O-T-E-U-S, Wines.com. Um, and then just just ask for an appointment. We are not open to the public, but um, we are always welcoming to the public, if that makes sense. Sure. And then there's a bunch of people in in Oregon that have been very supportive of the wines. They um, list them. There's you know great specialist wine retailers like Will and Danielle Prouty, Southeast Division. I have to say thank you to the Valley Wine Merchants. That's uh, Andrew Turner, uh, Fratelli Ponzi in Dundee, Ariana Restaurant in Bend, Coquine on Southeast Belmont, the Allison Inn and Spa. A recipe in Newburgh. There's like the list goes on and on. Olympia Oyster Bar. <laughs> Which is an event that I miss and I will catch it this year if you do yeah. it again. We, so Maylin and I do try to collaborate as much as possible. She's been a great supporter of the wines. There are so many people to thank, but essentially that's a snapshot. So the biggest thing is to follow you on Instagram, find mm -hmm. you on social media yes. and see where you are going next. Yeah. And follow you, Heidi, because... There's always connections. There's always connections. The reason we're in this business because of people. Absolutely. Yes, I totally agree. Well, thank you for joining us. I know you have a trip ahead of you, so get out of here and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Heidi. Yes. Appreciate it. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. Say hello to our second guest today, Greg Van Dyke of Bud's Bloom Wine. Thanks, Greg, for joining us today. Hello. Thanks for having me. So obviously you are not Bud. Um, you don't look like a Bud. So who is Bud and who is the picture on the front of your bottle? Okay, so... Bud, I'm assuming that's Bud. Bud is, yeah, that was my grandfather, uh, late grandfather. Grandpa Bud, nobody knew him by his real name. Everybody called him 
Bud. So friends, family, kids, everyone called him Bud. Um, he, my dad's dad, Grandpa Van Dyke, started a farm out here after World War II. Um, he had uh, originally homesteaded in Wyoming, started a farm out there, and then moved out to Oregon in 1952 with his first two sons and family and started a farm here. So, And the farm's outside of Yamhill, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's kind of around Yamhill and Carlton area. The particular uh, vineyard site is, is right outside of Yamhill. Perfect. So how does your grandfather play into what you're doing now? Because you didn't start out as a winemaker um, or owning a winery. You started really from the grassroots. Right. Yeah. I, um, you know, it's like I said, I grew up basically as a third generation on that farm, you know, large extended family. So there's multiple farms within this story, really. Um, but my dad started his own farm after going to college for a few years and going to the National Guard and so forth. Um, he went back to being a farmer. And uh, so we basically did that for 40 years or so, my dad did, uh, as I was growing up. And I have a large family. We all had a hand in it. We all, you know, drove all kinds of equipment, did a ton of hard labor, you know, of all kinds. Um, you know, working in the shop, working in the fields, uh, a lot of forage crops and stuff. And basically, my grandfather was the first one to farm that property in my family. And then my dad. And then uh, when they retired from farming, we planted vines there in 2008. So, um, you know, really from 1960, I believe, was when that property came into our family to 2008. So basically 48 years later, we finally put vines on it. So, yeah. So why the decision for vines? You know, I think my parents had had this in their mind since actually the year I was born, which is odd. It was 1979. And uh, my parents had quotes that I saw that I, they were in their office, like 20 years later, these surfaced out of nowhere. I was like, where are these? It was like literally two pennies on the dollar today. What would it cost to put in a vineyard? Um, they were looking at doing that. And I don't know if I was the demise, you know, like the, the, the reason why they didn't I was decide the fourth to child. Do... And maybe yeah. I was a straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing or that, Oh, that dream's got to wait a little longer. So sure. I think maybe I, I, that's my speculation. I don't know if I can really get that. Out of How that. interesting, because that would have put them in the whole pioneer phase of the wine industry. That was about yeah, the I, right I think, time frame. I think they were kind of knew what they were doing with the farming they were doing. And there was a lot of um, uncertainty in, in what it would take to make that transition. And then, hey, you got a, a large family to support. So I think that was certainly a an aspect and probably wise in some ways and maybe, uh, you know, yeah, Something maybe good. On later. Maybe good timing. Mm -hmm. So you started as a farmer. You did other things in between, and then you've transitioned over to to making your own wine here, just in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So I, what was that decision? I mean, why, where, how? Uh, was it just know, a drawback? I went to college, and I was in engineering for two years, mechanical engineering, and um, took a step back. I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do, and then I. Took a year off and I worked for Ken Wright Sellers mm -hmm. and he was a good friend of one of my best friends who introduced me to his family. And so I worked for him and loved the experience, loved the, you know, fermentation process, um, loved the culture and just the overall experience there was amazing. So everything from in the vineyard and the cellar uh, all the way through the year. So I, you know, experienced basically a little over a full year of, of winemaking um, 
both in and out of the cellar. And it was, it was amazing. I loved it. So I always had this idea that I would want to do that. And I wanted to figure out how to do it on my own. So I, I figured I'm going to finish my degree and see where that takes me and do it on the side. And so it's been a, been definitely a long time in the making, bringing that on the side. So sure. To where it's come more to the forefront then. Right. And so I stayed in and out of the, you know, in engineering, I basically was doing uh, bridges, buildings, all kinds of things in construction, in the construction industry. And, and so then I finally came back to during the recession, back into wine, and I'd been always doing crush off and on and, you know, basically staying in it, but never fully submerged. And so in 2008 to 2010, I kind of made that transition back. And then I went to New Zealand and uh, made wine there in 2010 at Adarangi. And that was an amazing experience for about mm -hmm. uh, four months or so. And then came back and got back to, well, I'm going back to engineering to try to try to get back to what I want to do on the side. So sure. well, I want to touch base a little bit more on the wine and kind of your mentoring when we come back in just a second. You're listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 in the heart of Portland and streaming worldwide at prp.fm. You had mentioned your mentor in the whole wine industry. That's quite impressive to have a mentor like that to really kind of give you your ground roots to really what he does, but also maybe kind of get you jump started in the direction you're going to take. So maybe, I mean, touch on that maybe just a hair, but also let's jump into your wines because you, you brought us three beautiful wines, very, very different vintages. We basically did a library tasting here today and so different from 13, 14 to 15. And then you're also doing something different now. It's not Pinot. Right. So, um, yeah, to start with the mentor, um, my first mentor, Ken Wright, Ken Wright Sellers, um, good family, good, great friends of mine. I was so happy to be introduced to them and work for him. And like I said, it was he was an, a great, great mentor. He was really um, very relaxed and just very keen on what he's doing, and also very kind to everyone around him. Just a just a, a very good teacher. Um, so yeah, that was my first inspiration, really, and that's where I really gained true appreciation for wine because I really did not understand or appreciate wine at that point in my life. I was only 19 years old. So it's really young to appreciate yeah, wine, especially right. good wine. Yeah. And he was, he was a great example. I mean, he makes small batch. Um, a lot of his practices are what I've learned from originally, and I've definitely developed on those. I've had other mentors as well, but that's really where it all started. So sure. that's where I gained kind of the appreciation and love for the process. So you have just predominantly done Pinot. So that's been your big thing until just recently, which you've started introducing something different. So what is your take? What is your style? Why why is your Pinot different maybe than some of the other ones that we're going to drink? And which I will say, we are just talking about this kind of in between segments. You as a very boutique winery, it's amazing how great the wine is. And this is one thing I learned when I was working for Ken. It's really quantity versus quality or vice versa. And that there's, you can take that however you want, but that, that has some traction and, and, and has some, some real truth to it. 
Um, you can certainly make good wines in larger quantities, but small batch winemaking has a different touch to it, um, a different finesse to it, a different personability to it. So you really, you're a little more one-on-one with the wines than you are, you know, the ratios are better, let's say. And you can control things differently. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to add or take away. You just try to just treat it perfectly as possible, simply as possible. And that's the thing. Minimal intervention is what I learned. That's what I practice. And uh, Ken was a great person. A lot of other winemakers I've worked with and around. Um, some in my family, for instance, uh, both my brothers are both in the wine industry. We all learn from each other. And so you take a little bit of this, you take a little bit of that, and you make your own. That's what I've done. So Chardonnay is the next thing. Chardonnay is what I started making in 2017 of my own. Um, very similar to the way I do my Pinot Noir, except as a white, but a lot of the same ideals and practices. Um, like I said, all natural, no additives. You know, keep it simple. So uh, just fantastic. A simple has a true elegance and a complexity to it that maybe we don't give it enough credit. So I want to come back and I want to talk a little bit more about your wine, but also what else you're up to and what you're doing. Sure. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. So we left off talking about wine, but I did definitely want to talk about where your fruit is coming from because it is a state. It is what your family has been doing for a while and kind of where that whole homage and heritage is from. So talk about the fruit a little bit. So the fruit is definitely the most important thing. I mean, obviously it's, uh, you know, great fruit comes off this vineyard. It's a piece of property that's been in my family, like I said, for roughly 50 years or so. And it's been cultivated and given a ton of work and a ton of love. So, you know, in 08, when we planted these vines, we planted a bunch of different clones uh, in different blocks. Uh, it's Pinot Noir mainly, but there's some Chardonnay and uh, Riesling as well. So I really try to source from different blocks each year. I take a combination of different clones and the clones are planted in their own area of the vineyard, their own blocks in the vineyard. So I take from different terroir a little bit, different clone characteristics, and you can kind of see that show through in different vintages and and play around with and experiment that with that a little bit. So that's what I enjoy doing with the single vineyard, the estate vineyard. Um, and the Chardonnay is impeccable as well. And not so much clone focused, but mostly just pulling really great fruit off the same property. Um, so yeah, it's really working off of the land that my grandfather first farmed and my dad and my all my siblings and we've all had a hand in it really. So when I think stories like that, land like that, you know, whatever you're doing out there really lends to the overall quality and feel of the wine that you're doing. And you actually have a, you have a stake in the game yeah, and, and a lot of pride that goes into it because of that. Sure. I mean, I grew up farming on that property for, you know, basically the first uh, 15 plus years of my life. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've driven a lot of machinery on it. I've done a lot of gotten really dirty out there and I I rode a combine down the hill backwards one time. So yeah, well, you that was know, not a fun day. That was not a fun day. We probably need to talk about another piece <laughs> of your life that we need to to kind of help with that part. But I know you had mentioned that you worked, you know, with a couple different winemakers that have been great mentors to you as well. And I want you to make sure that you mention that. Talk about that because that really does lend to your overall style and and how your wine ends up. Sure. Um, you know, back to 
Ken Wright, and then uh, various other winemakers in the region that I've I've learned a little bit from or uh, been part of their crush, uh, but mostly um, following that Adarangi, which is a sister winery in New Zealand, basically a sister winery to Ken Wright Cellars. An amazing experience out there. And then coming back here, I learned from all the winemakers I work around. And, you know, in 13, when I started making Bud's Bloom, Laurel Ridge, their staff, their winemakers also had had a hand in things too. So you learn a little bit from everybody you're around. And then now it, uh, since then, I've transitioned to day camp in 2017. Which is a little bit confusing because I wasn't really quite sure what to think of day camp. It's really just a play on the owner's name. Um, and it's a co-op of a number of different boutiques, smaller wineries that are working together on different labels. Essentially, yeah. It's a, it's a collective like a couple others around the area that are several winemakers underneath the mother winery Day Wines. Um, but Day Camp was created as a collective to work in the same space, share the same area. Um, it's really fun. It's called Day Camp really because people literally do camp out during harvest and during vintage because you're there 24 seven, ideally. So. Sure. So, which is interesting because I had no idea until I actually visited the winery that y'all were camping in basically the backyard, um, having a good time, making wine, dogs, friends, family, whatever, which is, it's a great collaborative. No, it's great. I mean, the, everybody has been amazing to work with there. Uh, Brianne Day, the owner of Day Wines, and then her supporting staff, and now Eric, who's there, uh, he's been he's been great to work with as assistant winemaker. But then all the other winemakers there too. I mean, you have, like I said, several different labels there, each doing their own thing, different styles, different varietals, some funky, some very interesting things going on that are very characteristic of such a great collective. Perfect. So to wrap up, I just want to make sure that people are following you on social media, on Instagram, whatever, to figure out where you're, where you're pouring wine, where you're going to be other than day camp, because you do pour wines there. Yeah, I really, um, my website, budsbloomwines.com. I tend to post my events also on social media and then send it out to my wine club members as well, but really pouring it at different events around Portland, um, Portland night market, is something I should be doing here in, uh, next year. And then also really just a bunch of different festivals, small and big, some of them. I also will be doing tasting appointments really at uh, Day Wines as well. So at the tasting room, you know, you can contact me by phone or email and we set up a, a time and a place. Perfect. Or just do it at the winery. So Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Greg, and making the trek out here and bringing the library of wines for us to taste today. It was absolutely fantastic. It's been my pleasure. I'm really happy to share them with you and thank you for having me. That's it's so great meeting you. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed. So. Thank you for joining us for the third episode of Wine Crush Season 2. Have a great weekend and we will see you at the bottom of the glass.